0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Fewer juice boxes and less screen time. Those are just some of the new regulations Colorado's private child care centers will be required to follow next month. There are also minimums for daily physical activity and interventions for kids struggling with mental health. Jake Williams is the director of Healthier Colorado. His organization had a hand in
1: passing the rules. Welcome. Good to be here. So what exactly do these new rules do? They promote the health of kids in Colorado, and Uh they do on a few fronts. Um, First, there are new standards when it comes to nutrition, uh, new standards for physical activity, uh, as well as screen time and social and emotional supports for kids. And were there rules in place before? No. Um, Really? These are um, additions or significant improvements uh, to rules that existed before. And I, we
0: mentioned a little bit that there are also changes in how food is served to children and what type of food is served to children.
1: Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. Um, first of all, having nutrition standards is especially important right now in Colorado because even though we're somewhat famous for being the skinniest state, if you will, in the nation for adults, it's not so for kids. We're middle of the pack um, nationally when it comes to childhood obesity. About a quarter of Colorado kids are either overweight or obese now. Um, So nutrition is uh, very important, as is physical activity, and both of those things are addressed here. So in the new standards, when it comes to nutrition, meals will have to align with those new USDA uh, guidelines that made some news about uh, a week or so ago. Uh Um, And basically what they say is they prescribe a healthy balance between uh, proteins, fruits, and vegetables uh, are low in fat and sugar. Um, And then they also, uh, these new rules... Uh, remove sugar-sweetened beverages um, from uh, daycare centers unless parents choose to to bring them along. Um, And they also limit uh, uh, juice uh, to twice per week. Why limit fruit juice? I thought that was good for people. Little-known fact... um, uh, is that juice often has the same amount of sugar in it that, that soda does. It also has some uh, additional nutrients that make it a better option uh, than soda. But when it comes to sugar content, it's largely the same, which impacts both oral health as well as obesity. So it's not getting rid
0: of juice altogether, just limiting uh, to, to certain times during the week. That's right. And can providers then, let's say, serve sugar-free Kool-Aid or things like that as, as, as drinks? Yes. Yes, uh, that would be allowable. Okay. Now, these rules sound specific, but they aren 't nearly as strict as rules proposed five years ago. Uh, how are the regulations the Colorado Board of Human Services passed last December different from
1: this first batch um, the ones pa- the ones passed last December or five years ago five years ago i 'm sorry five years yeah ago. Uh, so the ones that were attempted to be passed uh, five years ago. Um, I would say didn't do nearly as good of a job in hewing closely to some common sense principles. So here's an example. One of the provisions that was proposed five years ago um, would actually um, prescribe the number of crayons uh, that kids – Are supposed to be given in daycare centers. Um, And I think it's pretty hard to reverse engineer what the common sense principle is for something like that. It seems arbitrary, right? Um, But when these rules, for example, uh, take physical activity. um, For full-day daycare programs, kids are now entitled uh, to an hour of physical activity a day. uh, For half-day programs, 30 minutes a day. And I think it's pretty easy to understand that Um, kids need to be physically active in order to be healthy. um, And thus, um, you know why these rules are in place and why you should follow them. I think it it goes, you know, uh, it can be applied to any situation where um, rules are more likely to be followed if you know why they're in place in the first place.
0: And and so these rules are are more popular than the first, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah. This has been a product of uh, five years of collaboration between multiple stakeholders including child care providers. And so I think all that hard work is paid off in some pretty common sense and popular measures.
0: I think it's important to, to have a sense of scope here. How many child facilities, child care facilities, uh, will this affect and how many kids?
1: This will affect over 100,000 children in Colorado at um, just over 2,000 daycare centers in Colorado. Uh, it doesn't apply to in-home daycare centers. There are about 2,500 of those, um, but had they have fewer children, about 18,000 children in, in, in those facilities. So it's the bigger commercial ones. So not, let's say, a neighbor up the street
0: who has two kids taken care of in the neighborhood type Correct. Of thing. Okay. Uh, these rules also include limits on screen time as well. Could you explain what those are and, and, and the thinking behind them?
1: yeah um screens are popular with kids i can I yeah. can uh, speak to that as a parent um, i'm doing my best to limit it at home um, but what it does is it limits uh t v time to thirty minutes per week um, with some um, uh, special occasion exemptions um, and then thirty minutes a day for tablets and computers things uh with, with which kids can interact and can have some educational value they they make it dis- they distinguish between you know, passive viewing of TV versus potentially educational value derived from tablets and computers. So could
0: watching Sesame Street for an hour every day no longer be an option? Correct. Okay. And but yet moving to, let's say, playing a, a, an educational game and let's say an iPad would be okay with some exceptions. Correct. Okay. Uh, what makes a private uh, child care provider uh I guess, come on board with these? I mean, there seems to be a sense that maybe they'll have to hire more people to kind of take care of these things or learn more things
1: uh, to to become in compliance with these rules. Well, involving them from the get-go um, was a big essential step in making sure that um, they'll go along with these rules in the first place. And also, um, these rules don't result in any additional costs for providers, which is a key element. Frankly, if they did, um, if uh, they... Uh, increased costs for providers and thus increased costs for parents, I don't think they would have passed. Hmm. Um, So given those two facts, um, I think it's very likely that uh, these rules will be uh, widely understood and accepted by child care providers. This is Colorado Matters from CPR
0: News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Jake Williams. He's the director of Healthier Colorado. Uh, Jake, the new rules for child care providers also set standards for disciplining kids. What are those?
1: Yeah, uh, actually what they say is, number one, um, they should have a, a written expulsion policy. doesn't say anything about what should be in that expulsion policy. They should just have an expulsion policy so parents can understand if and when uh, a center chooses to expel the kid. And one of the big reasons why this was included um, is because um, preschoolers are expelled at a rate uh, three times higher than that of their peers in upper grades. Hmm. Um, And so it's this is a consumer problem. Uh, You know, there are a lot of parents out there who deal uh, with this issue of having their kids thrown out of of daycare centers. So this is a way to help parents understand and everybody to be on the same page um, with respect to um, what the procedure is for expelling a kid. And so, for
0: the for the private uh, child care providers, would that be because they want that tool in the toolbox if they need to have a child no longer at the facility?
1: Yes, and, and that that tool remains. Um, daycare providers can deny service, um, you know, to anybody uh, within federal law. They obviously can't discriminate against any sort of federally protected class of of, of people, um, and, and they can remove and expel uh, kids as well. You know, uh, if a kid is violent. Um, uh, that kid can certainly be removed, and there are of course mental health rules as well going into effect. Uh, talk a bit about those and how they relate to the expulsion or, or or the suspension of a child. yeah, the intent of these new standards is to is to give kids with um, uh, emotional and behavioral problems a shot, and so what they do is um, Every daycare center in Colorado will now be offered uh, free training on how to deal uh, with these with these kids who are facing these behavioral challenges. And um, when an intervention is necessary uh, to help figure out how to deal with these challenges, the state will now dispatch a mental health consultant to these facilities to help them. Um, uh, work through the problem at no charge to those
0: facilities. So there will be an extra uh, help there if there is a child that maybe has not reached expulsion or suspension that has some some mental health problems. Exactly. Uh, Will this change the cost to child care uh, providers for people who may not have a lot of money to bring their kids to to these facilities because of these rules changes?
1: No, it's not going to increase cost and it's going to improve um, uh, the experience of parents Um, in that I think it'll lead to less expulsions, better support uh, for kids uh, when it comes to uh, mental health. And this is a concern. Polls show that 27% of Colorado parents um, have kids with whom they have a concern about mental health. And it's going to go a long way towards um, helping with the uh, obesity problem we have here in Colorado because you really need to take these rules in in a broader context. Okay. Um, The food and beverage industry spends $2 billion a year marketing products to kids, and studies show that 98% of those products are high in sugar, salt, or fat, and um, many or most of those products are designed to be addictive, and a lot of times the um, the cheapest food is also the, the least healthy food. So we're in this environment where it's tough for parents, tough for families to make Uh, sound choices when it comes to nutrition. And this is one common sense way that we can begin to uh, feed our kids properly, instill good habits when it comes to eating, as well as good habits when it comes to physical activity. Jake, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thank you.
0: Jake Williams is the director of Healthier Colorado. He helped organize parents to push for new regulations for child care facilities in Colorado. Those rules take effect at the beginning of next month. Still ahead, what is the most overlooked part of Colorado's history? We'll ask the state's new historian. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Now, Colorado has a new state historian. She's Patty Limerick, and we had a question for her. What's the most misunderstood or overlooked aspect of Colorado's history? Her response? The continued significance of American Indians. Limerick is a history professor at CU Boulder, where she directs the center of
2: the American West. She's joined in studio now with Ryan Warner. Patty, welcome to the program.
3: Oh, thank you for having me.
2: So you think American Indians aren't talked about enough in Colorado history, particularly the Southern Utes. You say they've historically been very savvy when it comes to thinking long term about natural resources in particular. Explain that.
3: Well, the Southern Ute people have had a... uh, really striking approach to having this great resource of natural gas and and oil on their reservation. And so they built a company, Red Willow, and that company has been very prosperous and has has, uh, development in the Gulf of Mexico. I mean, it's really quite an extraordinary thing. They invest, they save and invest uh, the revenue in many cases. They don't just squander it as some other groups in American society have been known to get great windfalls and to squander it but they're really building for a for a permanent lasting fund uh so the southern Ute people are certainly people to learn from and be inspired by and to note and to uh recognize as really important players in our in our state and in our nation, for that matter.
2: Very Uh, current players in our state and our nation. And a myth that you believe persists about American Indians is that they are vanishing. You Mm -hmm. actually wrote a piece in the Denver Post about this. Um, In that article, you said that uh, they have been resilient and are very much a part of Mm -hmm. contemporary and, frankly, urban communities. Where do you think the idea of the vanishing American Indian came from?
3: Late 19th century, uh, there was indeed a drop-off in the... uh, In the population, the disease impacts had been devastating, the uh, poverty and, and confinement on reservations and changed economies or absent economies. I mean, there were all kinds of troubles. So that could be interpreted, if you weren't thinking as carefully and thoughtfully as you might, as, oh, they're disappearing. Uh, the population is shrinking uh, people are are getting are intermarrying Indian people are intermarrying with whites maybe they won 't really be Indians anymore if they have mixed ancestry. All kinds of odd ideas like this notion that somehow or other intermarriage will turn them into somebody who, who won 't be in any way connected to their tribal traditions anyway. A bunch of odd ideas come into play well i 've had odd ideas there 's nothing wrong with that, but when you get too fond of your odd idea and you think it is. Something to believe, in spite of evidence that 's where it gets it gets dangerous, and you can see why for white americans this this was a a gene of guilt to think well it 's really nothing that we 've done they're just they 're just a declining, disappearing people. there was psychological benefit in taking this mistaken notion, so you can figure out how it happened um, and because you can figure it out this is the basic faith of the historian, if you can figure out how that mistaken set of ideas came into play. You can declare your independence of those. You can think through a habit of mine. You can look at its origins historically, and then you can say, let's change that habit of mine. You're not trapped by the past. You
2: even point to the photographer Edward Curtis, who worked in the early 20th century, early 20th century, as a potential culprit in this uh, perception of the vanishing Indian. Because he did yeah. these portraits of American Indians that uh, made them appear to be frozen in time. And that this image
3: still persists. Yes. And Curtis uh, was one complicated human being. And so to pillory him or blame him is not um, fitting because, in fact, he really did have some sense of mission to preserve the – well, to keep attention on these people and not let them vanish. From at least from memory, whatever happened. So uh, Curtis, I wouldn't care to take a sharp stick and poke at him. Okay, uh, and I especially wouldn't because one of his successors, I guess, is a Navajo photographer, Will Wilson, who has taken up the techniques of the of a century ago and takes photographs of contemporary Indian people in that Curtis-like method, and also takes photographs of non-Indian people. So I have myself a photograph where I look like a vanishing. Relic. I mean, I'm in a, the same kind of sepia tone thing. Will Wilson does this great, great work of, of just saying in, in a gentle, probably even good-natured, um, humorous, ironic way, we're still here. We're, we're still, here. still here. And we're taking photographs and we're taking photographs of white people and we're making them look like they're vanishing, which is very cool.
2: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And Patty Limerick, who heads the Center of the American West at the University of Colorado Boulder, has another title to add to a long list of titles, and that is State Historian. And in light of that new position, we're asking her about a misconception of Colorado history. And she has chosen the fact that American Indians... Uh, are still very much a part of contemporary history, despite the myth that some hold of the vanishing Indian. This is something she has written about extensively. And let's talk about the processes that have brought American Indians into cities. Yes, because there's, yeah. there's an urbanization mm-hmm. here that's an important part of this story. Mm-hmm. What are the drivers?
3: Well, there's uh, various ones. Some of them are just opportunity seeking, which all human populations have some version of that. And so for many Indian people, it has been a matter of of choice of, of having a profession, having a occupation, and pursuing it into a city, and there's also some quite unhappy stories of forced relocation of a policy of the federal government of really not uh, entirely not consenting. We're going to take you off the reservations, and we're going to resettle you in cities, and you are going to cease to be people of tribal connection and tribal identity. So that that policy in the mid 20th century that. Did a lot um, to increase the, the urban population, but that if you accent that too much, you squish the notion of Indian people making choices on their own, which is a big part of the story of urbanization. So, and it's also it gets really to that core of. The recognition that you can have a thoroughly contemporary identity, you can be a reporter, you can be a lawyer, you can be a, a professor, a teacher, you can be all kinds of an insurance agent, you can do all sorts of stuff and still be quite Indian. You can still have very strong tribal connections, so there are uh, now there's a, a greater percentage of the Indian population are urban Indian people then, and yet, then live
2: on reservations
3: yes uh-huh, uh-huh yeah, and yet to say. Well, that's uh, those are completely different populations. That's not accurate because urban people keep ties, just as I have a strange tie to my hometown. I mean, I'm not really going to be as sentimental about that as I might be, but uh, but people, it's perfectly possible to live someplace and still have a very strong tie to a homeland there.
2: When we asked you to choose uh, a misperception, a misconception of history. And, and you chose this, this perception mm-hmm. of American Indians in Colorado. I gather that's because you've had lots of interactions in which people have just been uh, ill-informed. Um, at, yes. At, what,
3: what do those interactions sound you know, like? What do you, they sound like uh, situations where I actually have had people, non-Indian people say to me, oh, are there still Indians? I've had that happen at various uh, social encounters, cocktail parties, and so on. Or are there still Indians? And then that's often got the follow-up question. Are they real Indians? Oh, dear me. Oh, dear me. Are you a real person? You're seeming like an odd person. I mean, with that kind of conversation, you don't – there's a moment of paralysis where you think, oh, where shall we start with this? And in Colorado – that's not a problem. Where should we start with – well, first of all, don't scold them. Don't say that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard you say, a person say. Don't do that because that's not an educational stance. That, that does not work with freshmen. If you say to freshmen, well, you don't know anything, do you? That doesn't work with freshmen. So,
2: And you're saying that this uh – also does not work with adults uh, and you that you as state historian are not going to take that kind no, of no
3: no because that is a, a direct fast route to failure if you take that so yeah. but what you can do is you can say oh it's so interesting that you would say that because just a, a month or two ago I was at the the anniversary 40th anniversary banquet for the Native American Rights Fund which is in Boulder Colorado and is a it's two blocks from where my office is Native American Rights Fund is the principal Litigating force on behalf of Indian rights, everything, water rights, religious rights, all kinds of rights. And it's – I walk by there. If I want to walk downtown, I walk by the central place of Indian activism in the courts. So uh, the Cobell case, the famous case against the Department of the Interior for mishandling royalties of um, Indian resources. I mean it's it – that's is emanating from Colorado. It's from Colorado. So yeah. – and it's so present. It's, it's so not – well, we'll have to dig around and see if we can find – something that shows us that Indian people are still important, it's there. You you go there, you see the website, you walk by the place, it's it's there.
2: And the case law is there to prove it as well. You are also interested, uh, as the new state historian, in shedding light on uh, Colorado's American Indians who served in the military in particular. We are at the 50th anniversary, essentially, of the Mm. Vietnam War. I imagine Mm -hmm. that that has... Partly to do with this,
3: yes. I uh, it's a story that I won't bog us down in. But I got involved with the Vietnam War commemoration effort. Uh, I have written on the subject of Indian people as participants in the United States military because that is bewildering. Some people who are at a distance can just get snarled up in confusion. How could an Indian person serve in a United States military when the United States military was historically used against Indian people? Hmm. And as one um, remarkable Indian man said to me, "Well, it's our country. I mean, it was our country before it was before you guys were here. So we'll fight for our country because it's it's a deeper tie that." Uh, and so I am really. Uh, trying to help as much as I can in the whole project of getting Vietnam veterans attended to and having chances to tell their stories if they choose to tell those stories. And I want to make sure, and, I, and the Vietnam War commemoration people are totally behind this, of making sure that Indian people are full participants in that. What I envision, and this is just me dreaming, I don't know if it's going to happen. I envision really doing some serious work on exhibits, looking at war veterans in Colorado over 150 years, including Indian people over 200 years, really, including Indian people who fought against whites because they are veterans, too.
2: Thank you so much for being with us. Congratulations on the new position.
3: Thank you so much.
2: Patty Limerick is the state's
0: new historian. She spoke with Ryan Warner. At CPRnews.org, you can hear about another title she holds, a pretty strange one, the official university fool at CU Boulder. Just ahead, big changes are coming for the neighborhoods around the National Western Stock Show. Are they ready? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Thousands are expected to visit the 110th National Western Stock Show taking place this month in Denver. And soon the complex will undergo a major billion-dollar transformation. But what about the neighborhood adjacent to the stockyards? City leaders have said the globeville Ilaria Swansea neighborhoods have been largely forgotten for 30 years. But that's all about to change, and in a big way. Vernon Hill is a resident and business owner in Gloville. He's worked in the neighborhood since the early eighties and is also a member of Globeville Civic Partners, a neighborhood association. Welcome Vernon Thank you thank you for having me So give me a snapshot of the Globeville neighborhood today What's it like
4: well presently um we're uh we're uh, more more of a blue collar area um uh, we have uh uh some meat packing plants we have uh you know there's uh, just basically uh, a number of small businesses located throughout the area there. And, uh, and we're uh, kind of in a process of going through a transformation. What is that transformation, do you say? Well, the transformation right now is, uh, you know, we've recently um, had a situation where there's a development of the Crossroads Commerce Park, uh, which used to be the old Osarco plant. Uh, they redeveloped that. And we're looking at that opening up here probably uh, sometime around the mid-summer, uh, which we're in, in hopes of it generating uh, jobs for the area and things of that nature. Uh, We've been working on a uh, a few things through the Global Civic Partners to uh, go ahead and work on the uh, the, uh, the enforcement of uh, cleanup in the area with, uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, businesses that uh, have been there for years, excuse me, and they need to uh, begin to uh, get the area kind of in a position to where it's more of an attractive area at this point.
0: But as we alluded to earlier, big changes, other big changes in store for your neighborhood, not just the uh, National Western Stock Show, but multiple public work projects are slated in your neighborhood. Uh, we spoke to the city's Kelly Lead late, uh, late last year. These three historic neighborhoods,
4: Glowville or Swansea, are surrounded by these six big projects that are all descending on these neighborhoods, which include the National Western Stock Show redevelopment, Brighton Boulevard
2: redevelopment, reclaiming three miles of the South Platte River, three new commuter rail lines that RTD is building, and four stations. Those are some examples. I
0: seventy is also one of our projects. That's a lot of stuff taking place in your neighborhood. I mean, are there concerns for the people living there?
4: Well, yes, they are. Uh, we're we're concerned uh, about the impact of how these projects are going to take place and and, and affect them on the positive and on the negative side. Um, On the negative side, uh, you know, we're looking at... uh, for example, the redevelopment of the Washington Street area. Um, you know, where National Western is going to uh, put in uh, two roads on uh, 49th Avenue and on 51st Avenue, which is going to connect Washington Street, which is a main thoroughfare through the Globeville area, going into uh, the National Western. And with these connectivities, uh, it's our understanding that right now they're just going to work on the connectivity factor. But uh, we're trying to find out how that's going to affect Washington Street as you get this traffic coming from the new National Westering into this area. And uh, they've launched a study. And uh, put some funding toward it for this year to begin uh, a studying of a plan to uh, see how that's going to affect things. And we're really concerned about that because um, if this project doesn't run consecutive with the National Western projects, uh, we're going to have a situation. We're going to have, uh, you know, millions of visitors uh, coming in through the Globeville area, and that's going to create havoc.
0: And and are your concerns being met? It sounds like you're concerned. All these projects happening concurrently, people working, things are new roads coming in, new people coming in. Uh, for someone who's lived there since the, the you know for so long, how is it? Uh, how is this affecting you?
4: Well, uh, we're we're nervous. Uh, one of the main concerns is uh, you know with uh, the administration possibly changing and uh, a lot of departments being uh, re. Uh, moved around that uh, the people that we're dealing with directly with this large of a project and for this long time frame uh, could possibly, uh, the neighborhoods could possibly get lost in some of the shuffle. And our biggest concern is making sure that uh, we have some type of commitment from the uh, NDCC and the mayor's office to help us uh, be sure that all of the concerns that we're having will be addressed.
0: And that's the North Denver Cornerstone Collaborative, correct? That is correct. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Vernon Hill, a member of the Globeville Civic Partners. We're talking about the numerous public work projects underway in his neighborhood, or about to get underway in his neighborhood. Uh, Vernon, some of the most affordable housing in Denver is found in your neighborhood, uh, and some are concerned about the dramatic rise in home prices that could follow this development. Uh, When we spoke to Kelly Lead, who overseeing these projects, he says the city remains confident that affordable housing will stay in Globeville.
4: Certainly an outcome of this reinvestment, again, where there's been none for 30 years, is that you're going to see a change in the makeup of folks that live there. But we're also committed to making sure that, uh, and and this is the mayor's commitment, that we work through using public policy, using, um, you know, job creation, using a variety of tools that we have available to make sure if folks that currently live there, if they want to stay
0: there, that they can. And I want to note, according to the latest data, the average home price in Globeville is around $170,000, so some of the most affordable in the city. Are you confident the city can follow through on this commitment that uh, uh, Kelly Leed spoke about?
4: well yes i am i um you know and, and I've been working pretty closely with mr leed uh on all these issues, and as a matter of fact, we've been actually working on what with what is called a statement of intent and um we're just about at the point of completing the statement and in that statement, there is also uh, uh, it also addresses the issues of affordable housing and and the uh, and things of that nature and uh They seem to be doing everything in their power to work with us and making sure that we do have something that we can uh, carry through for the next 10 years to To be sure that all these issues are addressed,
0: so the statement of intent would be presented to the city, the city, and saying, "Hey, we'd like you to sign this, so we have at least some uh, something on record that says you're going to follow through with what you've said." Exactly, got it. In the Globeville Neighborhood Plan finalized in 2014, residents were asked why they di- what they didn't like uh, about the neighborhood. Uh, some of their concerns were the inability to easily move around the neighborhood, multiple dead end streets, and railroad blockages and highway blockages. Uh, they also cited the lack of uh, growth. Grocery store and, and comparable uh places to
4: find food. Um has the city been listening to your concerns? Well yes, they have. Um, we haven't had a lot of effort put into that at this point. And there is a concern that uh, you know, there's a lot of commercial property throughout the uh the Globeville area. And you know, and uh the concern is that uh with the the uh marijuana uh Facilities that are being put into these areas and everything else that a lot of this land will be spoken for, and there won 't be anything left uh, for us to be able to have these type of grocery stores or or uh, pharmacies and you know clinics and things of that nature and so what we 're trying to do here is uh, See if the city could give us some incentives or, or give some of these, uh, these commercial developers incentives to go ahead and put these kind of uh, uh, facilities in our area. Now, where is the closest grocery store to, to your neighborhood? Well, at this point, uh, the closest grocery store is about two miles away. And it's, it's, it's really kind of disheartening sometimes because, you know, you're there all the time and you see people going to a 7-Eleven store and coming out with four or five bags of groceries just because they may not have transportation or not be able to go that far to buy groceries and things that they need. and. For people that are in a low-income bracket, that's really kind of puts them in a dire straight effort.
0: Now, have there been talks about maybe completing some of the sidewalk projects there or or, or some of the other projects infrastructure-wise to get ready for this this development in your neighborhood?
4: Well, there has been talk of it. Uh, One of the biggest issues that we always run into is funding. Mm. Uh, You know, although the C2 passing – has, uh, uh, you know, uh, did a lot of the funding that's uh, involving the National Western. And that was the funding, uh, the existing uh, funding tax for uh, uh, rental cars and and lodging. Yes, yes. And uh, that's the biggest first part of their project going through. There's only a certain portion of that money that can be used into the neighborhood areas. So once we get down, say, for example, the connectivity of the National Western to Washington Street – they can go ahead and they can uh you know that that money pays for that all the way down to washington street but it doesn't address washington street so now the city has to come up with funding to uh you know to take that from washington street say from the i70 all the way up to 52nd avenue and so now what we have is we have a situation to where they have to get to find the funding somewhere else in their budgets to get this done and that's that is one of our largest concerns and then also we have a lot of areas over there that, uh, you know, there's uh, the infrastructures of the streets aren't there. We don't have sidewalks. Uh, some of the streets are in a very poor condition. And this stuff needs to be addressed as well. But we have to work together with the city on finding the funding to get a lot of these things done. Vernon, give me your
0: vision for the Gloville neighborhood, let's say 10 to 15 years from now. What do you want it to look like?
4: Well, I'd like to see... That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see uh, a lot of things going. I'd like to see commercial investment uh, in the area to address the food desert throughout uh, through tax incentives. I would like to uh, uh, see the job situation uh, uh, begin to, uh, to, to get a lot better to where people aren't working um, for just the lowest possible wages. Um, I, I would like to... Uh, see our schools. Uh, Right now, our areas have the lowest rated schools in the city of Denver, and I would like to see the school infrastructure and things of that nature brought up to uh, a, 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 a par that would attract people to want to raise families in the area. Vernon, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you. Vernon Hill has worked in the Globeville
0: neighborhood since 1984 and is a member of the Globeville Civic Partners. He is also a member of a neighborhood advisory committee working on the National Western Stock Show improvements. Read more about the many projects taking place in the neighborhood at cprnews.org. Just ahead, traffic fatalities surged last year in Colorado. What's behind the trend? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. For the first time since 2008, traffic deaths in Colorado topped 500. Fatalities rose 10 percent in 2015. Sam Cole is with the Colorado Department of Transportation. He told CPR's Joanne Allen that the spike has
5: CDOT's attention. This is concerning because over the last 10, 15 years, we were on a significant downward trend. And now it looks like we're starting to go back up. You know, when it comes to your chances of being in a traffic f- a crash, you have a 1 in 200 chance of getting killed in, during your lifetime in a traffic crash. Just in this coming year, 1 in 7,000 licensed drivers will be killed in Colorado. So this, this is a huge issue. And what is the reason for the upward trend? As far as the reason for why fatalities are rising, it's probably due to a number of reasons. We all know that gas prices are at um, historic lows. And when you have um, gas prices that are uh, low like that, and you also have an economy that's humming along, more people are going to be driving. More people driving, more congestion. And that certainly has a lot to do with the reason that we're seeing um, uh, traffic fatalities spiking.
6: Now, how many uh, fatalities have actually happened in what what categories?
5: So about uh, a third of our fatalities are related to drinking and driving. We also know that about half the fatalities involve people who aren't wearing their seatbelts. Even though it's about 15% of the people in Colorado don't wear their seatbelts, they are significantly overrepresented in the fatality data. Motorcycle deaths are up as well? Motorcycle deaths are up to an historic high. We saw 104 motorcycle fatalities in 2015. That's up by about 5 to 10 from last year. And we have never seen motorcycle deaths that high. As far as the reason, we don't know. Was it a long riding season? Were more people out riding their bikes? Um, we know that you're much more likely to uh, die if you're not wearing your helmet. And Colorado does not have a helmet law.
6: In terms of distracted driving, what about in the areas of of using phones and texting and reading the
5: dashboard, stuff like that? Certainly, there's a a lot of distracted driving that happens out there. Phones are becoming more of a bigger part in our everyday lives. And because of that, more people are using them when they drive and they shouldn't be. We are seeing um, some concerning numbers, probably about a third of our crashes be related to some sort of distraction, not necessarily the phone. So I understand
6: that the idea was to try and zero out fatalities for the year 2015, but that didn't happen.
5: Definitely, there's a vision at CDOT. Um, we call it moving towards zero deaths. That vision encompasses many decades. It's not going to happen in a few years. We, we know that um, fatalities have come down from 700, 800 many years ago. Now they're down to 400, 500. That is significant improvement. We are looking at significant reductions. Um, This latest spike is a concern, though, because that is not going to get us towards zero deaths without um, redoubling our efforts to actually making some inroads.
6: What is CDOT going to do about this problem?
5: Certainly, there's nothing CDOT can do about um, increasing congestion due to a humming economy and low gas prices. But there's a lot that we can do when it comes to trying to educate people about the behaviors that they um, have that may be contributing to these fatalities. We're going to invest $3.5 million in uh, nonprofits and law enforcement across the state to try to address some of these issues. And how will they be
6: addressed? Will there be an ad campaign or, or
5: what? Well, CDOT funds both our um, law enforcement partners. It could be a, a law enforcement uh, campaign around uh, drinking and driving or distracted driving. Uh, it could be um, simply uh, a campaign amongst some of our traffic safety advocates to get people, more people to wear seatbelts. It could be a campaign to get people to put down their phones when they drive. CDOT's Sam Cole speaking with Joanne Allen.
0: Cleo Parker Robinson has had a huge influence on Denver's art scene. She helped start the Denver School of the Arts. She choreographed Opera Colorado's first production, and she leads her own dance ensemble. She was born in Denver's Five Points neighborhood and grew up in the era of segregation. This week, her ensemble hosts the International Association for Blacks in Dance. Robinson is a founding member, and her company will perform during the conference. She spoke back in May with Ryan Warner. Cleo Parker Robinson, welcome to the
7: program. Ryan, great to be here. Thank you.
2: In your own work, you often draw on, you know, heavy themes, important themes like social injustice. Why do you feel compelled to include that kind of commentary in dance?
7: Well, I think it's a lot about how I was raised. I was born in Denver in Five Points and, of course, at the Rossonian, and I was able to grow up and integrated, Even though it was segregated, the music brought people together. And it's, it was so magical for me that I thought that the world should be that way. And then I moved to Dallas and it was really segregated and I didn't see people from other cultures at all from where I lived. So I, have always been inspired to tell our stories and uh, bring us together through the arts.
2: Okay, you mentioned the Rossonian. this is the hotel in Five Points. Many of the great jazz musicians played and stayed there, and this was like your first apartment with your parents. Yes. I know you were an infant around that time, yes. but what what do you um, know about living there? What what stories well, have you heard? From I hear
7: all family? the stories. You know, the great Charlie Burrell, the bass player, said he brought me home from the hospital because my father was working, and he. He said, you know, musicians were there all the time. My father played music. My my mother was a classical musician, but my father, a jazz musician, and they loved the music, and I hear about it all the time. But I, I didn't move too far from Five Points, so I always knew about what was going on at the Rossonia.
2: But you had um, mixed-race parents. Yes. How was that perceived in that era?
7: Well, you know, my father's African-American and my mother was white. You know, so at that time during the Jim Crow laws, they couldn't even get married in Denver. They had to go to five different states before they got married. So it was really about love. And uh, even in the Rossonia, it was the only hotel for blacks. So having my mother uh, married to my father was really quite rare. But uh, somehow they managed to allow her to stay there even though it was for blacks only.
2: You know, what I have heard also is that black musicians were welcome in predominantly white clubs, you know, bring your talents and we'll, we'll fill the seats, but they were not welcome then to stay in oh, white abs- hotels, for instance, and this is why so many of them would go to the Rossonian. Oh, that
7: absolutely. Right? That was no. the only hotel. And so it, it, it was really quite marvelous in some way because Duke Ellington and Count Basie, I heard, and Billie Holiday ended up staying in, in our community's homes because there wasn't room and the Rossonia. And that was the only hotel. So things worked out in uh, kind of magical ways.
2: So your company has done some controversial work, uh, such as Southland by the late choreographer Catherine Dunham. It depicts the lynching of a black man falsely accused of rape by a white woman. It premiered in Chile in the early 1950s after which it was shut down by the U.S. Embassy, which claimed the dance was anti-American. It didn't paint a pretty picture of the country. Um, The dance was virtually lost until your company chose to perform it, I think, in 2012. Is that right? Yeah. Why was it important to you to revive it?
7: Well, you know, I have been... um... I've mentored with Catherine Dunham, and she was my mentor for many years, and I would study with her in East St. Louis, although I knew about her when I grew up because my father would play Harry Belafonte's music, and we'd do the calypso around, and any time Catherine Dunham's dancers came on television, we were all sitting in front of the the tube at that point. Uh. So I knew about her. But later, studying with her in New York and then uh, in East St. Louis, I began to really um, carry on her legacy. So I love dancing dances that she danced. So a lot of them were quite popular. They were very ama- Americana and very entertaining. And uh, she represented the country. She represented the U.S. and Japan. But when she did Southland, yeah. she spoke about it. And she spoke about Julie Belafonte playing the the role of the white woman and how painful it was for her to do it.
2: Is, is that Harry Belafonte's yes, wife? Yes, yeah,
7: that's his former wife. Former wife. And yeah. she came uh, to Denver and had staged other ballets for us, but they always talked about Southland. And it was a great desire. By the time Miss Dunham was 90, uh, I think we asked her, what would she want to do most in her life? And she had done everything and performed all over the world. She said, I would love very much to have Southland reconstructed. So it was sort of like her last wish Hmm. and um, asked us to do that. Did she get to see the show? She did not. Oh. But she knew we were going to uh, delve into it and find the archives, find the scores, find the material. Uh, her husband did the, the wonderful sets. So it was very hard to find all of these things. But we did mount it and we took it to the University of Florida after we permitted it at the Newman Center. You did choreo
2: archaeology. Yes, way, we did. You? That
7: was way deep. Yeah. <laughs> you grew up in
2: such a musical home. How did dance become a part of your life? You should be a oh, trumpet yes. player. Oh, or yeah, something, right, right.
7: Right. I did play the piano. I loved playing piano. But I loved to move. You couldn't stop me from moving. So everyone would say to my parents, "She's going to be a dancer. She's going to be a dancer." And my father would always say, "She's going to be a doctor. She's going to be
2: a doctor." <laughs> <laughs> right. They had been poor musicians and probably wanted. Not that's it's right. Different That's for you.
7: right. Uh-huh. But but my father danced and taught us all to dance. You know, like the um, oh oh we'd watch television, we'd see a lot of the baseball games and you know so on. But as soon as the commercial came on with a bit of music, he would have us all get up and do a few little ditties and move. And of course, at the Rossonia was the the um, dance hall. So he was always dancing. He and my mother danced all the time. I I'm not
2: sure I knew that. So it was yeah. a dance hall as well. Yes. and you would have you would have seen a lot. Oh of yeah, dance. yeah.
7: It was a it was the um, hotel. casino hotel, and, right. and it was the uh, ballroom. So did so you, big bands played there, like Duke Ellington. Yeah.
2: Did you get introduced then to ballet like many young girls oh, yes. or was it, is it ballroom? Or
7: No, no. I got introduced really early uh, to Cavillo and Parker, uh, Frida Ann and Lillian, uh, because my father worked at the Bompies.
2: I think she was a founder of the Colorado the Cara Ballet. ballet. Yeah. So
7: I did early when I came back from Dallas, which was really traumatic and I was told that I would never walk. It was really a traumatic moment living in Dallas because I wasn't so used to being really segregated. Um, my, my mother was white and my father wasn't with us and we were in a totally black community with no white people around because it was, so we really almost had to hide my mother. It was really quite bizarre. So moving back to Denver, my father got the job at the Bombay's Theater. So I was around 13 and from that day on, I went into musical theater. And I found out about this wonderful Lillian and Frida Ann and the ballet, and that was it. I started um, studying and um, going to New York then.
2: In the stories that you have peppered us with, we've heard lots of different locales. So you've been in St. Louis, you've been in Texas, you also spent uh, your prime dancing years in New York City. But you chose to return to Denver in in your adult life. Um, Just briefly, why?
7: You know, I, I felt so connected to family um I went to Colorado Women's College even though I was in New York I um began a school early uh right out of right out of college I was teaching at CU and I loved dance even though I was studying pre med and doing all that that I think my parents would have loved but I loved dance but when I went to New York at 19 I felt as though we were somewhat cheated in Denver, that everyone saw Denver as a kind of kowtow. So therefore, I wanted to make a difference here for young people to be exposed to the arts. And you
2: appear to have no regrets
7: about that decision. No regrets. I love every bit of it, every day of it. You still dance
2: yourself in addition to doing choreography? I
7: do. I I do. I dance every year. Granny dances to a holiday drum. (laughs) I do. And I have a ball.
0: That's choreographer Cleo Parker Robinson speaking with Ryan Warner. This week, her dance ensemble hosts the International Association for Blacks in Dance. And that's our show for this Wednesday. Join us again tomorrow thanks to Ryan Warner, audio engineers Michael Hughes and Matt Hers, and our director Andrew Dukakis and producer Sam Brash. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.